Chapter 12 In the century in which we live, there are so many modes of belief and of unbelief that future historians will have difficulty finding their way about. Anatole France, The Revolt of the Angels, 1914 Around late August, Babette sits me down in her study. You know, Ross, I now only take students on local bus tours for the college, none further than Seattle, as I grow weary so easily these days, though years ago we would charter airplanes and visit distant places like Beijing, Moscow, and Cairo, the whole wide world. For me, this was a fantastic opportunity to travel and lecture on subjects I love and be paid for doing so. But those times are long gone, and I must be satisfied with the Pacific Northwest. This next school year, my limited trips continue. The coast, Mount St. Helens, Southern Oregon, and so forth. I would like you to accompany me and assist. Certainly, I agree. So, she continues. One of my favorite tours is the Central Oregon High Desert. We take Highway 84 East along the Columbia River. You will see the most fantastic geology exposed by water through the gorge. We visit a delightful little town called Shanako, which was formerly a major sheep exporter. Fossil, where, as you might imagine, there have been many interesting geological finds, and also antelope. Do you know the significance of that place? I shake my head. Not that I can think of. Babette rolls her eyes. Well, since you can't be bothered with your own regional history, I will tell you. During the early 1980s, an Eastern spiritual leader called Bhagwan Sri Reichnicht relocated his commune from India to a large ranch near that town. She pronounces Rajnish thickly as Reichnicht. The Reichnicht poem, as they called it, consisted of several thousand people. They worked the land, dammed a creek for irrigation, and lived in small huts. It seemed a meager existence, but they desired focusing on spiritual affairs. The Reichnich poem attracted numerous Western converts, who in many cases came from affluent backgrounds and contributed their wealth communally. This appeared strange, because the Bakwan afforded himself great style with a fleet of Rolls Royce automobiles. It sounds vile, but is this any different than the Christian tradition, where congregations may live amidst absolute poverty, but worship in a beautiful church, while tithing so grand cathedrals can be built? At any rate, while the Reichnich Perm toiled away industriously, other Central Oregonians were not pleased with such an unusual group in their midst. It became popular to criticize the Bhagwan for his excesses, and local people found it obscene his followers might bathe in the stream naked or whatnot. I don't care for this religion personally, but the people seemed happy, though of course it was supposed they must have been brainwashed. I observe all this because I contacted a woman named Sheila, who, if you ask me, was the real power there, and received permission to make their experiment part of my high desert tour. We would bring in a bus full of 40 students, view the area, and see what we wanted. Everyone was quite friendly, and this went on for several years. But then, after some property disputes, a commune building burned down mysteriously, as well as other incidents changed things. Well, the Reichnich Perm reacted as any people do when under attack. They became defensive and much more closed in. Going through their security procedure no longer made sense with time requirements for the rest of my tour, and I lost contact with them. 
Then, in 1984, catastrophe struck. There was an internal struggle within the group leadership. Schiller fled to Europe, and a great number of people became sick in the town of Antelope after eating at a restaurant owned by the Reichnich Perm. The government swept in, uncovering a conspiracy to poison regional water systems, as well as massive immigration fraud. With his commune destroyed, the Bhagwan traveled back to India, where he died some years ago, although this sect still exists under the name Osho. Their land went up for auction and was purchased by a wealthy rancher from Montana. Then, not long ago, I found out he had donated this property to a Christian youth organization called Young Life. Oh, I know about them, I break in. My parents worked for that group when I was young. Babette nods. I possess a connection there as well. My sister happens to be a Young Life minister. Wait, wait, you have a sister? Is she French? Did Germaine kidnap her too? Ross, you ask so many personal questions. It is in very bad taste. Excuse me. Before your very rude interruption, I was saying Young Life renamed the Reichnich Perm as Wild Horse Canyon and started a summer camp program which just ended its first season. They have invited a select group to view the transformation of the Center for Evil Paganism. My sister... <clears throat> can put us on their list for next weekend. Would you please accompany me on your best behavior? Absolutely, I exclaim. Babette smiles. You know what a pagan is, don't you, Ross? What, literally? Literally, linguistically. I think for a moment. No. It makes so much sense. What is one of the main characteristics of Christianity? That it took root as an urban religion? City dwellers no longer found spiritual resonance among gods based on agricultural patterns or natural cycles? Where is power located in an ancient metropolis? A king, a ruler, a strong man. So they translated their religiosity accordingly, often into a messiah figure. But out in rural areas, what are called in Latin the pagus, old beliefs clung on. Therefore, a pagan is someone from the boondocks. Very similar to the term heathen, which of course means people who live out on the barren heath. Look at all this knowledge. I pass on to you for no extra charge. I offer a half smile. That does stand to reason. Babette looks at me seriously. Reason. Such a new concept. Ross, when was the last time you read the Bible? Have you ever studied it? I reflect on this. Not since childhood. Once, I tried reading the whole thing straight through, but highlighted sections that didn't make sense or conflicted with other parts. Soon half the book was marked up, and though my parents helped explain, it just became harder to take the thing seriously. Sunday school and Bible studies just seemed so false, the way passages would be picked from one chapter or another to manufacture messages. Really, it often just made me feel ill. Even though I love history, it's still something I've avoided. Babette nods, lips pursed. That is a natural reaction. You had no background to understand the old text, and for elucidation, only people who took it as inspired supernaturally. I think you would benefit from a good academic look at the scriptures. Come along. She leads me downstairs to the library and scans along her ancient history shelf. Now, one of the earliest modern biblical criticisms was by a man named Ernest Renan during the 19th century. Here we are. Vide Jesus, 
Oh, but it is in French, which might as well be Swahili for all the good it will do you. Albert Schweitzer also wrote some good texts on the subject, but who you will find most valuable is S.G.F. Brandon. Babette pulls the volume down. Brandon was an Anglican minister of the early 20th century, but as you will discover, quite an independent mind. You may find this surprising, but in Europe, where there is state-financed religion, church authorities are much more free to examine their faith. His books are a true joy. I recommend Jesus and the Zealot to start with. I accept the book, flip through a few pages, then turn it over. The back carries a brief author's biography, and I'm captivated by Brandon's picture. He is a sober man with gray hair, dark bushy eyebrows, and wire-rimmed spectacles who exudes severe authority. My professor squints and removes a couple more titles. From behind them, she extracts two unlabeled glass bottles. A small number of pills rattle at the bottom as her hand shakes. For many, religion provides solace in their final years. I carry no such illusions. These are my suicide drugs. I have seen enough old people languish away painfully to know it is not a fate for me. There is nothing I value more than independence. Once that vanishes, this is my escape. I catch her eye. That's a funny way for a junior Benedictine nun to talk. Does the Pope know about your stand on euthanasia? Babette waves a dismissive arm. Hush. Ross, you really ask too many questions.